One of the things that's most exciting for me on Sunday mornings here at Stonebridge is you all. Y'all come in here, and there's a community here. There's friendships and relationships, and it's hard for somebody to walk in the room and not experience that or feel that, and that's always been one of the high points for me on Sunday mornings, and it doesn't stop there. You know, Michael talked about our children's ministry this morning, but in a short period of time, there's so many people serving here. Uh, I don't know if you all know, but our AV folks and the live stream guys and the music guys, they're here on Sunday mornings at about 6.45 in the morning just to be ready for you for when you come. We've got the children's ministry volunteers. We have leaders and hosts for our small groups. Um, Michael mentioned that we've got this new group of folks that have stood up to take on a teen ministry here at uh, Stonebridge. And if you don't know, we also got a group of guys that I'm like way excited about that are spending their time praying about and talking about the long-term plan for us from a facility point of view. So, I mean, there's just a lot going on, and it's y'all. It's the people that are here on Sunday morning. So before we ever sing a song, before Michael ever gets up to lead in teaching, I'm already blessed just by being here. And I just wanted to acknowledge that before we got going. I jotted this down in my iPad as I was sitting there. Paul says to his Philippian friends in chapter 2 of that letter, verses 1 and 2, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind maintaining the same love, united in spirit, and intent on one purpose. I mean, that characterizes Sunday mornings for me. There's a camaraderie here, a community, a unity that you cannot miss. But I want to add to that, sadly, the church in America, that may not be the case, and it's often marked by division versus unity Now, a number of you know that I lived in the deep freeze of Chicago for about 30 years, and I have to admit that I saw more division in churches in those years than than I care to think about. I have a uh, theology professor friend that was at Wheaton College, and he used to always lament about it. So this idea of divisiveness in the church or friction, it's not a new idea, I like to say that uh, the church would be perfect if there were no people in it. Uh, Just kind of something to think about it. Well, my friend Doug Moo says this, only when the local church is united can it act with one accord and speak with one voice and will it be able to glorify God in the way that he deserves to be glorified. That begs a question for me this morning about us. How do we preserve this? How do we not become a casualty on that pile, that heap of churches that it didn't go that way? And I think there's a lot for us to consider in that. But what I'd like to do first is remind us how we started, where we came from. Some of you were with us that first Sunday that we met. Some of you have joined us along the way. Either way, is great, but you might remember if you were there, that first Sunday, Michael opened the Word and taught about the significant theology behind celebrating the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. But we also opened up the book of Acts, and we looked 
at Pentecost when the church was founded and that large group of 3,000 people that came together. And we read from Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Let me just read that verse to you. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. You know, that first Sunday we expressed this idea of three principles, the Word of God, prayer, and discipleship, and we were praying then that that would be the DNA of what would become Stonebridge Bible Church. And for those of you that weren't there, just as a reminder, we didn't even have a name for the church. We probably called it the church with no name. And that lasted for, I don't know, Michael, a couple months? Maybe even a little longer before we landed on an identity. So it wasn't about the name. It was really about what had God pressed on our hearts to do. Now, I've had some time to reflect on that as I was preparing this week, and I was reminded in my own little simple mind the journey we've all been on over the last three years. It was kind of fortuitous in my mind when we think about those three principles. Think about the political drama we've had to deal with over the last three years in our nation. How about this virus? I mean, this virus alone, it's, it's a medical issue, but yet it divides people. You know, folks land on different sides of how to approach it. And if that's not enough, we've got to deal with, in my years, I've never seen this kind of upheaval in society. Whether you want to put a label on it, call it wokeness, the idea that there's significant racial unrest in our country, gender identity being an issue. How about something this simple? The church deciding whether to meet or not. Who'd have thunk we'd have been having that kind of conversation at this point in time? Well, all these things cause me to think about how important principles are that guide us. Paul tends to be one of those principle guys. So what I'd like you to do is open up your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, or your notepads or phones. Look, I'm an old guy trying to be modern here. We'll see how this goes this morning, you know, for an old guy. But uh, open up to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 19. I'm going to try and do two things this morning. Connect some dots with this prayer that Christy has already mentioned to our kids. But do it in light of the overall context of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So if you can, and I'm thinking most of you can, let's stand and I'm going to ask you to read these verses with me. And once again, as the announcement guy, I'm expecting strong voices, right? Okay, verse 15. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the boundless greatness of his power toward us who believe. You can take a seat. Thank you. Good voices. Appreciate it. Well, let me kind of waltz into these verses with a question. Have you ever sent a letter? 
Now, if you're born after 1985, you may be looking at me strangely because all you know is email, and now I gather that doesn't work anymore. You have to use some other form of communication that's a litany of things. But I'm talking about a letter. You know, a piece of paper? You write on that piece of paper your thoughts, and you neatly fold it in thirds, and you put it in an envelope, and you seal it, and you address it on the front, and you put a stamp on it. You give it to the U.S. Postal Service, and you hope it gets where it's supposed to go. Or if you're like me, three months later, you have it delivered back to your house with a stamp on it saying either the person doesn't exist or you had the wrong address, of which neither were true. But that's a different story. Well, there's a particular type of letter that I want to just talk about for a minute as we go to Paul's words. It's going to make some of you guys in the room really queasy. I want to talk about love letters. I expected a grunt. I think I got silence and heads down. So we'll kind of see where that goes. Now, love letters, they don't get stamps. They don't go to the postal service. They typically get delivered in person or put in a prominent place where you know they're going to be found. Sometimes they got a bouquet of flowers or some candy or a cute little gift that goes along whatever the sentiment is in that love letter. I am told that guys actually send these things to their wives sometimes. I'm told that. I'm also told that wives or women keep these things and they hide them in really special places in their houses, like in shoe boxes with their other 50 pairs of shoes. In a little box, it's all these little love letters, or maybe it's in a, in a drawer in their nightstand. In any event, my understanding is they take them out from time to time to be reminded of how their husband feels about them. Now, I didn't say this. I also know many guys that haven't even tried. Now, I write it off to maybe a little bit of laziness, but I think it comes down to they're afraid to put their feelings on paper because it would be easier to replace the engine in the family car than do that. Or maybe even worse, how about this one? Come on, she knows how I feel, right? Why do I need to say anything? I have to confess, I went down a rabbit hole this week. I started thinking about this idea as it related to Paul's letter, and I discovered something I never heard of before. Do you know you can download an app on your phone, or you can go to a website and get a customized love letter written for you guys? <laughs> Right? And in fact, some of them, they give you like the model for the letter. And if you give them your credit or debit card, they'll charge you $20 and they'll send you your own personalized love letter that all you have to do is sign. I just found that to be kind of amazing. So I don't mean to go off on this rabbit hole for a second, but here's one of them. I thought this was hilarious. <laughs> Knowing you's the greatest thing that happened in my entire existence. You don't even need to do anything. I mean, I'm not sure who says stuff like that. <laughs> Every sound of your voice is like music to my ears. Jason, how about that one with Heather, huh? What do you think? Your beaming smile chases all my worries and anxieties away. My favorite line in this entire thing. No words could ever express the glee I am experiencing right now. I mean, what guy uses the word glee? I mean, think about it. 
Exactly. Who wrote this? Yeah, I mean, I don't know, but he's getting 20 bucks. I can tell you that. You know, the last one. This is probably the only normal sentence in the bunch here. I cherish every single day we spend together. Get rid of all the other sentences. Don't spend the $20. Right? Dear honey, I cherish every day I spend with you. You're love me. You're good. It's a start. I just heard a woman say amen because she's never received a love letter. I don't know. I'm not really sure. Okay, so why am I spending time on this? I want to connect with you that Paul's letter to the Ephesians is something personal. It's special. Paul's a real guy, and he's writing to a real group of people, and they have a deep relationship with each other. And I want us to grip that when we go to the Word of God. It's, it's not some esoteric academic exercise that we go through when we read God's Word. This is from a holy God through people to people. It's personal. This is a letter of love that Paul writes. I choose to call it a love letter. So let's take a, a look at what's going on here. Those of you that are Bible study students, you know that this time that Paul writes is from Rome. He's in confinement. But he doesn't know what the outcome is going to be, whether he's going to be released or whether some other judgment is going to come his way. Now, in this confinement, he spends every day receiving visitors. Now, some of them are strangers. Some of them are friends. Some of them are members of Caesar's household, and some of them are guys from the military. His Praetorian Guard, the biblical text tells us. Here's what's interesting about this time. Since he's confined and they've chosen to come to him, he's got some uninterrupted time with them. He, he gets to talk to them about whatever he wants to. And the biblical text tells us that he really only has one topic. And that topic is the gospel of the kingdom of God or the gospel of Jesus Christ. He pretty much outlines it this way in his letter to the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known, well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Personally, I'm a little bit of a Bible geek. I love the way Paul writes. And he gets away with stuff I could never get away with. Look at how he ends verse 12. You know, I'm going to be well known through the whole Praetorian Guard. Well, that's a really small group of guys. But eh, to everyone else. It's like he's going to cover the gambit with the way that he writes. Well, I'll make this other observation as well. If you're familiar with Paul's writing... You know, he didn't intend to come to Rome as a prisoner. God orchestrated it through a series of events in his own life. And it wasn't his choice. He thought he was going to come in as this person into this big metropolis and be able to gallivant around the city and share the gospel. Instead, God brought him as a prisoner and gave him a bigger platform. Now, I don't know how it is with you, but when I experience something in my life that's a, I'm going to, label it a God thing. I don't always recognize it at first. And even when I start working it, sometimes I either think or say something really stupid, like, you know, I wouldn't do it that way. 
Can you relate to that? God does stuff differently than we would do. The thing I would suggest is, but boy, when he does it, big things happen. And we're just along for the ride. I'm just digressing for a minute, so you can hang on to that thought. Let's move on. The point I'm trying to make here as we get to the text is that this is a deep personal relationship in this letter. And to understand that, I'm going to ask you, turn in your Bibles to the end of the letter. Go to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 through 21. I want to illustrate something for you. Now, in Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 19, Paul is offering a prayer to his Ephesians friends. Something different is happening here now at the end of his letter. Beginning in verse 18, he's asking them to pray for him. That, I find, is a pretty interesting thing. Prayer goes both ways for Paul in a very easy way. He offers prayer for people. He asks prayer from people. Now, I don't know how your prayer life looks, but I would make this observation. For Paul, prayer is pretty central. I might say it's normal. There's this thought for me that what a challenge that is in my life. It's just something to think about. But that's not the point I want to make with these verses. That one's just kind of a sidebar for free. Take a look particularly at verse 21. Do you notice this person, Tychicus? Try and say that three times. Been thinking about this week. Man, if I had another grandson, Tychicus Wolf would be a cool name. (laughs) Looking at two of my family members on this side of the room. I don't think they're going to do that, but it would be interesting. So this Tychicus has a long history with Paul. You know, he comes from Ephesus. He's traveled with Paul on his missionary journeys. He's known by Paul, and he's known by the Ephesians. And Paul gives him a very specific ministry right now in the moment, and that is to deliver his letter. And he wants Tychicus to be the source for the people in Ephesus to know that he's okay. Look how he frames it up in verse 21. But that you also may know about my circumstances, how I'm doing. Then he says, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, is going to make everything known to you. And I've sent him for this reason, for this purpose, so that you can know about us, and so that he can comfort your hearts Here's a couple of things I'd ask you to take away. Paul doesn't want their concern for him to get in the way of the content of the letter that he's sending. He doesn't want them distracted because what he has to say to them is so important. There's something interesting here about Tychicus. Not only can he affirm that Paul's condition is okay, but he can also confirm that this is a genuine letter from Paul. There's no chance it's it's a counterfeit which was the case of a lot of things back in this day and age. We're dealing with first person. There are some theologians that think, as Tychicus sat with Paul, that he actually recorded the words, and Paul affixed his signature to the letter before he brought it to them. It is important for us to realize the role that Tychicus plays, because very often that's our role. We're not the front person. We're the loyal person that's supporting. We're serving in some way, and Tychicus had no problem doing it. If you were to read the Colossians letter, you'd find that Paul gave him the same job to carry the letter to the Colossians church, and you can find that in Colossians 4, verses 7 and 8, but let's move on from there. 
Now to understand context of this short prayer, we really need to also understand the believers of Ephesus. Like who are these people? For that, we've got to go back to Luke's record in Acts chapter 19, verses 7 through 10. It's a tight little series of four verses, but it gives us a really good snapshot. Paul's relationship with the Ephesians was deep, it was personal, and it was transforming. Things changed in their lives as a result of spending time with Paul. This text tells us that, was Paul, that Paul was in their midst for probably, by our count, just about three years. It began with 12 men originally, and it grew from there. They originally met in the synagogue, and we're told here in this text that while they were in the synagogue, Paul would reason with them about the gospel of Christ. Over time, that became a problem for some of the Jews, so Paul had to leave, and he took with him the people that bought into this idea that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, the text tells us they end up at this place called the School of Tyrannus. We could get into those details this morning, but we don't have time. What I want you to notice is what happens along the way. Take a look at the end of verse 10. And this took place for two years. The text also tells us that it happened daily. Do you see right above that where it says reasoning daily with them? Let me ask you a question. Imagine for a moment the person that pours God's word into your life. Maybe it's Michael. Maybe it's someone that's discipling you or mentoring you. Maybe it's a pastor on a podcast or a radio program. Whoever that is, whatever you're imagining in your mind. Now imagine that you had the privilege to be in person with that person every day for two years to hear about the gospel of Christ. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that have some kind of a transforming effect on you? Look at what it did for this small Ephesians church. So that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Can you imagine this little church, big metropolis of Ephesus, ruled by the Romans, small Jewish community, smaller community of believers, a lot of idol worship and stuff going on. In this little church that met with Paul is credited as they came and went with carrying the word of Christ throughout all of Asia. Now, Asia is a little different at this time than what we call Asia today. It's the countries that kind of surrounded Ephesus. So let me put it in contrast for you. How amazing would it be to hear that the gospel was heard in all of Tennessee, Kentucky, Alabama, and Mississippi from us? Sit on that for a minute. That's who this church was. That's who this congregation was. It's an amazing thing to think about. One last thing about these Ephesians. Go back to the beginning of the letter now. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul introduces himself, as you would expect in a letter. It's from somebody. But he talks about who he's sending it to, and I just want to make two quick observations about that. Let's remember, Paul was their pastor. He discipled them. He was their mentor. Put any label on Paul that you want to put on him. Here's what I think we can conclude. He loved them and they loved him. As a matter of fact, in the Acts record, 
we hear of a, the last time Paul sees some of the Ephesians, and he, he meets them not in Ephesus, but in a nearby city on the coast, and only the elders could come. And the text kind of characterizes it this way. Tears fell from their eyes when Paul told them he won't see them again. That's the kind of relationship they had. Years have passed now. Paul writes this letter back to them, and he says to the saints who are at Ephesus, don't miss this. He's crediting the Ephesians as being believers. But that's not only what he's doing in this statement. Look at, listen to how he phrases the second part. To the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Jesus Christ, it's not just that he's crediting them as being believers, He's acknowledging that they live like it and that people know they live like it. What a great reputation, huh, for people to have. Wouldn't that be great of us? Well, in the very next sentence of his letter, he gets into some deep theological ideas around what makes up the gospel. Now, we're not going to do that this morning, but for you Bible nerd geeks... If you begin in verse 13 and you end in verse 14, I'm going to put a little block around that. In the original Koine Greek, that's one single sentence. Now, I like to say Paul's the king of run-on sentences. In this case, it's obvious why he is. How do you stop in the middle of the sentence when you're describing the gospel of Christ? You've got to get through it. You've got to deal with the details. We could spend a month of Sundays here working through verses 3 through 14. And maybe someday Michael will do that for us. That would be good. Let me just summarize it for you. In those verses, he lets them understand that they were gods long before they were even born. He also lets them understand a difficult thing, that it would take the life of a person, the God-man Jesus Christ, for them to receive a benefit from God. He teaches them that that only comes because God was gracious towards them. He didn't have to do it. But he also tells them the benefit is that they inherit a kingdom that lasts forever so that they don't have to be bound by the fear and worries of all the trials in this world. Here's a great thing that I love in these verses. Why did God do it? Simple answer, because he wanted to. How about that as an answer? The text tells us that because it was his purpose. Now, the other thing that I love is the very last statement. Well, if that was because he wanted to, well, what was behind that? Why? You know, we like to think that we have this special place as humans when we're called to Christ, and we do. But he didn't do it just for us. He did it to glorify himself, to raise him up as the God over all the world all the universe of everything. This is what Paul is now teaching them in this letter. You know, he's gone through two sentences. The introductory sentence and this sentence. There's a pastor that I tend to read. He comes from more of a reform background in Philadelphia. His name's James Montgomery Boyce. There's a story that I've read in some of his books that I, I think connects this a little for me. Uh, it goes something like this. He was with a group of students from his church, and they said to him, hey, we have a question. What do you think Christians lack the most of today? 
Now, I'm going to give benefit when they say Christians that it's believers. It's the evangelical faith. What do, you, what do you think they lack most? And I was just struck by his answer to them because it's both short and to me it's, it's pretty profound. He said to them, to really know God. To really know God. Now, we could get into all of the jargon around what's he mean and that kind of thing. That's not my point. Here's, here's the point I'd like to make to you this morning. It's obvious to me, it's really obvious to me, that Paul knew that the Ephesians knew God. I mean, there's not a question in my mind. But the question that's being raised is, how do they get to know him more? How do they move from where they are to even a deeper relationship than they had. Now, Christy mentioned this with our kids. I'm going to ask you to think about it with me. As I was preparing, something struck me I hadn't really thought about before. But if you've got your Bibles open and you're looking at your Ephesians text, verses 3 through 14 are deep theology. Chapter 2 in verse 1 begins deep theology again. Right in between those two things, beginning in verse 15, down through verse 23. Now, we're going to look at 15 through 19. 20 through 23 adds a little more color to Paul's prayer. We're going to look this morning at 15 through 19. He's got deep theology, deep theology, and it seems like out of nowhere, here comes this prayer. It's like an abrupt stop from what he's talking about to just pray. Now, here's how that struck me when I was preparing this week. There's this continuous flow of prayer in Paul's life. It's not a ritual. It just happens in the moment. For Paul, prayer wasn't something practiced. It was something that always was on his mind. That's something to think about for us, something that you know, I would hope that we could learn. Well, let's get on to the text, beginning in verse 15. Paul makes this statement for this reason. That's a purpose statement. Let me just clarify it so we don't miss it. I would say that there are two objectives for why Paul is praying, and we've just walked through them. First, he wants a benefit to come to these Ephesian believers who he has this deep relationship with. You know, verse 1, he says, it's to the benefit of the saints in Ephesus who are faithful in Jesus Christ. But I would observe there's a second reason that Paul is praying And you kind of feel that out in verses 3 through 14. In verse 12 of chapter 1 and in verse 14 of chapter 1, Paul uses this phrase, to the praise of his glory. I would contend that Paul has two objectives in praying. The first is he wants a benefit to go to these people he loves. But the second is he wants God to be glorified in it so that as he prays, he's in alignment with God, and he's not praying something that's in the wrong place. Well, next, as we take a look at this verse, Paul offers them a compliment. He says, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. We're back again to these Ephesians having a good Christian reputation. But what's interesting for me is the kind of reputation they had, Paul heard about all the way over in Rome. So someone or some people had to be carrying this to him about his Ephesian friends. 
When you hear about your grown kids, those of you that have grown kids walking in faith, and somebody else tells you, doesn't that encourage you? Doesn't that lift your spirits? Hey, I messed up a lot, but maybe I did a couple of things well. Well, that's the kind of thing that's coming to Paul. He heard that they are faithful, and that in their faith they demonstrate love for other believers. And the third thing, Paul's just thankful for it. This is pretty straightforward. I'll make one observation. It seems to me they had a balance in the way they lived, these Ephesians. What do I mean by that? Well, it's a simple visual model for me. What they took in came out. What they took in was they received the faith of Jesus Christ in their hearts. And what came out was the overflow of that in the way they loved other believers. I I think it's a beautiful picture here. The Apostle John speaks of this idea in 1 John 3 at the end of verse 18. Let me share this with you for a moment. Let's not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Let me say that again. Let's not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. And what we do that's in perfect alignment with the word of God, the truth. You know, the Puritans in early America built an entire theology around this idea. They would teach that the Bible enters people through their mind. They would say then that the word of God, after being understood, moves from a person's mind down into their heart. And in their heart, God's spirit would nudge them to respond in a way that was in alignment with God, in thoughts, in the words that come from their lips, and in their actions. Here's what Paul says about these Ephesians relative to this Puritan theology. I've heard of your faith, and you know what? Your faith has legs. And it sure shows up in the way you love others. You see, for me, that's what unity in the church is all about practicing our faith, respecting each other by demonstrating our love. Well, let's move on to verse 17. As Paul moves through this prayer, he links the prayer directly to God as the source. Look here at the beginning of verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. You know, even in the way that he phrases this statement, it gets my attention He's recognizing the unity between God and Christ. Look how he says it, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, perfectly united. And then he establishes that only God receives glory. He says that he's the father of glory. This is an important thing for us to understand. Let me use an illustration to explain it. I'm once again going to show my age. For those of you that are as old as me, you might remember a pastor by the name of Warren Wearsby. Well, Warren likes to tell a story about William Randolph Hearst. I'm going to look over here to this side of the room because we know we've got a bunch of Californians over here. So it is kind of interesting where people sit. I have to admit that. Uh, so those of you from California know all about William Randall Hearst and the Hearst Castle going down the Pacific Coast Highway. For you young people that have no idea what I'm talking about, 
William Hurst was one of the wealthiest guys of his generation. Think about magnets of industry, like the CEOs of Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, these kinds of guys. Let's just say he had more money than he could count. Well, as Wiersbe tells the story, Hearst loved art, and he had a very expensive and a very broad collection of art, so much so he had his own art curator. I'm looking forward to that someday, having an art curator. He sends this curator out to find this very specific piece from one of the masters, and the curator fails. He can't find it. This is not good. Time passes, and the curator happens to be in one of Hearst's warehouses where they store some pieces of art, and he discovers that Hearst already owned the piece of art. It was sitting in his warehouse. Now, what's that got to do with what we're talking about? I'm going to read you one verse. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. For his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. How? Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Did you hear that? His divine power has granted to us everything for life and godliness. Here's how I connect it. God's resources are at our fingertips. And like Hearst with his art, we can forget that we have God with us, in us, and for us. Something to think about. Well, moving on in verse 17. Here, Paul's request of God for his friends is pretty straightforward. You know, he wants spiritual growth for them. He says, I want them to increase in wisdom and the knowledge of God. Now, it's interesting in these two phrases, the first, he says, is may God give you a spirit of wisdom. Now, I, I find that that word spirit is a little helpful in trying to understand the deeper details. It's the Greek word pneuma. Now, it carries with it the idea of needing a breath of air to live. A breath of air to live. May God give you a breath of air of wisdom, that kind of an idea. You see, when it comes to air, it's all around us, isn't it? But doesn't it take us to breathe in to live? So it can be present right in us, but unless we take it in, it doesn't serve its purpose to allow us to live. That's what Paul's getting at here. He he says God's ready to breathe his word into us. We have to decide whether or not to breathe, or as Michael says, to get your nose in the book. Interesting idea for me. Well, similarly, he uses the word revelation to make a point about gaining knowledge of God. That's a familiar word to us. It's the title of the last book of the Bible. It's John's revelation. This is the Greek word apokalypsko. It's adapted into Latin, and then we turn it into our English word, apocalypse. I mean, literally, it means to take the cover off, or open up, or make transparent. Paul prays that God will make the deep knowledge of himself completely apparent to his friends. Think about it this way. How does God reveal himself to us today? Through his word, 
We need to be in his word to benefit from his revelation. I like Michael's ditty, but I want to take a little liberty with it and modify it. How about we throw ourselves into the book, just not our noses? How about we make it the centerpiece of what we do? Well, let's put these verses all together quickly. Paul's request in his prayers for Christians who are already strong in their faith. Remember verse 1? He's already crediting them with that. And yet, he confirms by the way that he prays that they need to continue growing in their understanding of God. In this prayer, Paul prays that growing is a mark in their lives. In his word, in prayer, and in personal discipleship. Does that sound a little familiar about our three principles at Stonebridge? Well, Paul moves from what I describe as tangible and practical in this prayer to something more figurative. Now, I don't know for you, but figurative language is a little more confusing to me. Let me, let me make one quick comment on verse 18. If you're looking at your text and you see those first three words, I pray that, italicized in your Bibles, just in case you're not familiar with that, this treatment indicates that the original language doesn't include these words. But without them in our English translation, the sentence wouldn't read right. So whenever you see words that are italicized like that in your Bible, that's just an indication that we've had to make some modifications to make it work. But there's also a phrase in this language that I want you to focus on. He says, so that you will know. So that you will know. This is a purpose statement. It identifies the objective of what Paul is about to say. So for me, I can take this verse and break it into two pieces. And I would suggest that that may be helpful to think of it as two distinct ideas. First, a figurative concept, the eyes of your heart enlightened. That establishes context. And then second, the phrase, so that you will, which establishes purpose. And that purpose for Paul is focused on three things. Paul prays that these things will mark their hearts the hope of his calling, the riches of his inheritance, and the greatness of his power. Let's deal with that figurative phrase first. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know. The word for heart here is the Greek word cardia. We get cardiac arrest from that. Now what's interesting about this word is it's a common word in Scripture. Most theologians will credit that it's used right around 800 times. That's fairly often. Here's the interesting thing about it. It's always used figuratively. It's never used to describe that organ that pumps blood in our chest cavity. It's always figuratively. It references what is at the core of our being and what's driving these moral choices that we make. It defines who we are. It's that center where we take knowledge and thinking and apply it in the way that we live. Christy told our kids, hearts don't have eyes. That's true. So Paul's building on this idea with this word enlightened. Hearts don't have eyes, but it's also true that to see, we need light. So there's this question of light being applied here. How would I just summarize this for this morning? Paul's saying something like, may your thinking, may the very essence of what makes you who you are represent God's light, not the darkness in this world. It's kind of related, you know, to Michael's branding slogan, don't let the world teach you theology. But also notice it says in this text 
that your heart may be enlightened. There's a little bit of a, kind of a reference here that it's forward-looking. It's less about yesterday and more about today, less about last month, more about this month. It's carrying with it this idea of moving forward, of, of growing. Well, Paul then moves to these three tangible things that he talks about. The first, he says that you will know what is the hope of his calling. He builds a connection between hope and calling. Well, earlier in this letter, in chapter 1, verse 4, Paul's already addressed this. He, He said there, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Our hope is founded in God's actions towards us. We're the recipients of it. You know, soon to follow in chapter 2, verse 8, Paul is going to say in this letter, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Paul wants his friends to remember that God alone is their Savior through Jesus Christ. Their hope was that what God had done for them. They had talents, they had skills, they had gifts, but those things all came from the gift giver. And, And I think when I consider Paul, who would understand that better? You know, here's the guy that was the up-and-coming Jewish scholar of the day, trained by the best, Gamaliel. He was given the responsibility to deal with the most urgent issue in Judaism, those pesky Christ followers. He threw them in jail, he killed them, he persecuted them. But when he met Christ, Christ stopped him in his tracks. His change was more than amazing. I would characterize that transformation as both immediate and dramatic. He went from persecutor to evangelizer. You know what Paul knew? That that kind of change didn't come from him. It came from Christ. That's what we need to remember about our own faith walk. Here Paul says, you know what? You need to have hope. And that hope is his gospel saving us. Well, here's the second thing Paul prays about. He says the glory, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Within a few short years, Jerusalem would be pommeled by the Romans. The temple would be destroyed Life for the Jew would be impacted both significantly and permanently. They'd never go back to the way that it was. Paul's praying that now is the time for their faith to be grounded. I find it fascinating when Paul prayed that one objective, that he would be in alignment with God when he prayed. Those two objectives, benefit for his people and also alignment with God that God through his spirit somehow worked through Paul even in his prayer to know to pray this thing, even though it was some 10 or 15 years later that this suffering was going to come. He needed to pray now for that. That's the miraculous nature of God at work in our lives and through his word. Paul tells them, understand what richness looks like. It's his glory inherited by us. It is not our success. It is not our wealth. It is not our position of power in this world that we live. It is the power and the richness of the master of the universe. 
Finally, Paul prays that these friends will trust God's power to sustain them. He says what is the boundless greatness of his power toward us who believe. He describes this power as greatness. He uses that word in the text. In his Romans letter in chapter 1, verse 16, he adds a a little more color to that. Here, Here in that verse he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. For it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation. God's gospel is the visible representation of God's power. He takes dead men and makes them alive. He took you from a place of utter lostness and gave you the riches of his kingdom. This is what Paul is talking about. He's praying that his friends in Ephesus would continue growing in understanding that and to be encouraged that no matter what, God was going to accomplish his plan and they would not be lost while he did. Now let me wrap this up for you with a story. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells a story of a fellow named Philip Henry. I'm going to show my age to you again. Philip is the father of Matthew Henry. Now when I was young, Matthew Henry's Bible commentaries were the easiest to get your hands on. And oh, by the way, we were pretty poor, so they were also the cheapest. Uh, But they were just a great resource in Bible study. Philip is Matthew's dad. So here's how the story goes. Philip, Matthew's dad, was in love with a woman who would become Matthew's mother. They happened to live in London, But this girl that Philip was in love with was much wealthier than Philip and lived in a different class in the society. And back in that day, classes didn't intertwine. They kept separate. She had become a believer, and that was part of her falling in love with Philip, the story goes. And it led to her parents asking her a question. Here's the question. Where has this Philip Henry come from? Now... I vaguely remember the days when my sons were thinking about marrying, and that's code from a parent for we disapprove. We never get to the point. We just kind of like get it around the edges. Well, the daughter had a very straightforward response that was pretty brief as well. She said, I don't know. I don't know. Well, that's teen code for I don't really care what you think, right? But as I read this story, what struck me was her second sentence. I don't know, but I know where he is going. I know where he is going. You see, a Christian's worth isn't genealogy. It's not social status, wealth, or anything like that. Philip Henry's future wife understood that he was listening to the word of God, the voice of God, to guide where he was going. Much like Paul Remember those two benefits that we talked about that was his reason for praying? He knew that his friends were believers and faithful to Christ in their lives. But he wanted more for them. He wanted them not to forget from where they came. He wanted them to continue investing in a deeper relationship with God. That's the benefit that would come to them. 
but he also wanted God to be glorified. How does that happen? The same way. For when we respond faithfully to God, he receives the glory, doesn't he? This is what Paul is praying for his friends. Now, I started some 40 minutes ago reflecting on three years ago. I want to close on that reflection for you. Three years ago, there was no complex, multidimensional plan. How's that for a big word? We had no notion of size of ministry. So I forget, you know, we were the church with no name. But from the beginning, we prayed that three things would be true about our church family and all that we did. That the word of God exposited with care and completeness would mark us. That trusting God in prayer would guide us. And that discipleship of those God brought our way would be our legacy. Michael likes to say, don't let the world teach you theology. We're here today by God's grace clinging to these principles. And you know what? It's not popular, is it? It's not always easy, is it? I just want to close by telling you how grateful we are for you because we know that's where your heart is. And it matters to us because you are a blessing. Paul says in his Second Corinthians letter, as he describes his friends in Corinth, that they were a letter written on his heart. To a great degree, you are a letter written on our heart. And much like Paul, I want to close by praying for you. But this time, that prayer that Paul offered to the Ephesians, I want to offer to you. Would you bow with me and pray? Dear Lord, for this reason, I offer this prayer to you this morning. I have seen and experienced the faith in the Lord Jesus of these people here today and their love for all the saints. I give thanks to you for them. I pray that you, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give us all a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened so that we will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the boundless greatness of his power toward us who believe. Amen.